Hi, and thanks for joining Interesting People for 20, where in each episode we'll be speaking with people who have stories that are inspirational, motivational, and often truly amazing. This 20-minute quick podcast is meant to be something you can listen to at lunch, on a break, or out for a short walk. We'll hear about achievements, setbacks, and the challenges you might not normally see. Just about everyone has an interesting story, if you ask. I'm Eric Cohen, your host. I'm an inventor, technologist, and sometimes cyclist. But most importantly, I love a good story. And I really hope you find my guests as interesting as I do. In today's episode, we're talking with Susan Conover, who's the founder of Piction Health, a digital health startup based in Boston that helps primary care doctors diagnose and treat some of the most common skin conditions. As an engineer, Susan likes solving problems, and after a frustrating experience of her own, dealing with multiple doctors for her own skin cancer, she developed both a technology and a business that could help millions get the right diagnosis and treatment more quickly. Hi, Susan, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we talk about Piction Health, let's go back to the time when you were first diagnosed with skin cancer. Can you talk about what that condition is and how you found out about it? Yeah, of course. So I um, was 22 and my mom found a spot on my back on my birthday. I was wearing a lower back cut dress. And so, well, I mean, a lot of magical things had to happen to find it, but um, I uh, tried to go see a dermatologist, but couldn't be seen for three months. And I was told, you know, um, everyone thinks they have melanoma. And so I uh, went to my primary care physician who ended up biopsying my mole and uh, came back as a stage 2B melanoma, which um, obviously was a scary time in my life. Uh, And we also didn't know if it was in lymph nodes or distant organs. Uh, And so... (laughs) Um, I like got a PET scan and ended up being fine. Um, and then I've, I had another melanoma diagnosis a month and a half later and another one about eight months later. And so I, I know my experience is atypical, but it also really came at a time in my life where I was like trying to identify what was really next for me and how, you know, how did I want my career to go and, and, and what sort of things did I want to take on that were really important and meaningful and impactful. And so it was, it was good timing on that sense of things. Um, but so I, I decided to go back to school after working in management consulting, um, for a product development master's degree, cause I really missed product and, and building things for people who have problems. And I, um, had to pick a thesis. So thought, you know, what do I care a lot about that I think I could do a good job at? And I've just really committed to that thesis, I guess. <laughs> you and I are both engineers and we both like building things. So that seems like it it helped propel you forward to maybe building a company. Exactly. Hey, it's just another thing to build, right? <laughs> this story reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you heard the story about the woman sitting behind the bench at one of the Seattle Krakens hockey games. Did you hear that story? Yeah, I think she found a mole on on one of the players, right? Right, on the back of one of the coach's necks. 
She Why? saw a mole. She was in med school. She saw a mole, wrote a little note on her phone and held it up to the glass behind the bench uh, and said, I think you have a cancerous mole. And he ended up getting it checked out and it was cancerous. That's wild. That's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we all needed someone sitting behind us, you know, looking out for us. <laughs> exactly. Help me understand what uh, you were first diagnosed. It came back benign. And then you had other bots that started to appear that were cancerous. Is that how it worked? So I had this, this stage two melanoma diagnosis and like the, the full large excision. And I just, um, and, and so the day that I was, I went in to get, uh, the case fully excised, I just, uh, well, also went to the dermatologist to do a head to toe body scan and, and they didn't find anything, but then like a week later I was worried about a spot. And so I went to my doctor who biopsied it and it ended up being uh, a stage zero melanoma, but still, still defined as that. And, um, and so, and it was just, it was it's kind of scary, right? Because then it's like, what? I expected this person to find something and, and um, they didn't. I have found some of the same issues. You expect that you'll go to one doctor and that if one doctor understands something or will find something, anyone would find it. Did you find that different doctors maybe understood your condition differently? Certainly. I think that that's been one of the more surprising things I've learned in my journey is like people have different algorithms. Like one institution I know teaches like, just trust your eye, don't listen to the patient. And other schools of thought are like that the patient has so much information. And so like, it's really fascinating to see that healthcare is almost like a co- like a cottage industry and really varies in um, performance depending on where you go to school or, or you know, where, where you study, which is, is kind of wild to me because it's one of those areas you hope there'd be like really clear standards on what success and failure looks like. You would hope that there would be sort of this ongoing sharing of knowledge. And we'll get into it in a little bit in terms of AI and machine learning, but in terms of uh, physician decision support, but that doesn't always exist, does it? No, but we can create it to exist. Now let's move into Piction Health. You have this melanoma scare, it's treated, and you think, oh, you, you could have just moved on with your life and gone to work in a product yeah. development consulting company or, or, or worked in management consulting, but instead some little voice inside your head says, says what? So I, I got my undergrad degree in mechanical engineering and I did work in management consulting after I graduated and, you know, how I thought about it, right. is like, I, I, in my engineering degree understood how things work and in management consulting, I'm understanding how people and organizations work, you know, at the end of the day, I really like being able to build things and like put my own butt on the line and say, is this going to work or not? And we're going to be responsible for that. was trying to sample different options and decided, hey, you know, like if I'm ever going to pivot into starting a company, like the, this is a great environment to be able to learn how to do that. You know, was there like a particular moment where that you remember where you thought, okay, I'm actually going to do this. And then what did you do next? I decided to take a few different classes at MIT on entrepreneurship. 
and IEP class, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, we, we did a project, right. Where you, you get to like work on your own thing, um, and try all these, right. Figure out the costs for acquiring a user and like build an early prototype, that sort of thing. And I just really fell in love with the sort of process and, and just like, I love learning new things and there aren't like there, I mean, every job you learn something new, but inherently when you get to larger companies, it's more and more about specialization. And I just also realized that this is one of those forums where I can always be learning new things, even if they're things I don't like doing, right? Like figuring out payroll or taxes or (laughs) things that are involved, legal contracts, um, it's still a really important part of uh, to to make things happen, and so it's just kind of roll up your sleeves attitude. You had this previous experience. Did you have in your mind what this company was going to do? Did you know right away it was going to be a computer vision app that that looks at skin conditions and helps patients or doctors understand what the condition is and how to seek treatment? How did it start? It started off as just like, hey, you know, I had this scare and I was really sad and disappointed that it wasn't found earlier. And I don't, you know, like, I don't even know who would have found it earlier. How, like, do I have people in my life with a specific visual training expertise? And so just thought, hey, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if, if technology could help patients know what care that they needed and could get that care. And obviously started with, you know, identifying pigmented lesions, suspicious of skin cancer and evolved from there to be a product um, actually for like a specific type of skin condition among patients. And, uh, and then like iterate, continually iterated, continually got feedback on from various stakeholders and landed on identifying adult rashes in primary care to enable that doctor to have the visual expertise of a dermatologist. And our product is still housed within that medical environment. That doctor has a ton of training that they're bringing to the table, but we can just elevate them to visually identify things they maybe previously wouldn't have picked up on and can help a lot of people because those doctors encounter multiple skin disease cases a day. So just realize that there was a big leverage point there. If I'm a patient, I have a rash or some skin condition. And I'll just ask, is Piction Health, is this product specifically or currently just focused on rashes or is it other skin conditions as well? For now, we're focused on adult rashes. And that's because it's you know, 80% of problems that appear in primary care and 75% of spend. And so we realized it was a very overlooked area. Um, and this is like psoriasis or rosacea or shingles that like, these are just very common diseases that get continually misdiagnosed. So realize it's easy also to use a smartphone to take a photo and be able to analyze it. And and that it was just an overlooked area. So it was just a ton of user interviews and, and customer interviews. I've talked to over 800 people at a minimum right now. About so it's this. really interesting. So as a patient, I have some kind of rash, rosacea, eczema, psoriasis. The first port of call is usually your primary care physician. So what you're doing is you're helping PCPs more accurately 
triage, diagnose, and help would help me seek treatment with the right expert? Or is that how it works? Yeah. You as a patient go see your primary care physician. We have a product for them that helps them save time and improve their confidence by taking a photo of the skin condition, answering three simple questions, and then we identify the most visually similar conditions to the picture they just took, what's called a differential diagnosis, and then help them do the last 20% of the problem, right? Like if it could be psoriasis, asking them if it gets better and worse over time, if it could be Lyme disease, asking them if they've been exposed to like potentially getting Lyme disease, gone hiking in a specific region of the country, that sort of additional contextual information that allows a doctor to say, oh, I think it's more likely to be disease number two versus four on this list. And so we do that visual feedback for them and then help them know what questions to ask next. I have a friend who's a dermatologist and I have the luxury of if I have something with my skin or one of my children has something wrong with their skin, I can snap a picture and text it to her. But not everyone has that luxury. That's the dream. When we've talked to PCPs, they're like, you know, my ideal solution is is basically having like a dermatologist sitting next to me, teaching me about like what things to look for in order to figure out a next step and counseling on that. And patients too, right? It's like if you have a friend who's even like orthopedic surgeons get texted photos of skin diseases from their friends and family and extended friends and family because they're like, you're a doctor. Tell me what's going on with this rash. (laughs) Fortunately, I have friends who are cardiologists, orthopedists, dermatologists, PCPs, and it's it's very common that I'll I'll send them questions and I'm sure they get bombarded. I love the the (laughs) idea of I'm a PCP or a general practitioner, and I would like to have a dermatologist sitting next to me at any point in time. You're using technology to help that PCP have enough expertise to help their patient find treatment. Mm -hmm. I remember when we first met, you were looking at many different types of skin conditions and you were looking to use artificial intelligence and machine learning. And in order to use machine learning, you need a fairly large labeled data set of all these different skin types with your latest focus on rashes. Mm -hmm. Did you even need to solve that problem? Can you talk a little bit about the technology that you developed? We decided to focus on rashes and then went to find data sets. And we're really surprised to learn that there wasn't a pre-existing data set. Uh, There are various data sets for skin cancer, right? Like you could download one and build a model today if you wanted to say like pigmented, suspicious skin cancer or not, basically. And Uh, But so we were really surprised to learn that. And so we partnered with over 200 dermatologists in the pandemic from more than 18 different countries now, including um, uh, South Africa and Tunisia and India and Bolivia and Spain in order to create a representative AI that works across all different skin tones, which a lot of people don't realize that there's a, a gap in medical literature of like 85% of photos in textbooks are light-skinned patients. Um, and so even if you were to pull from all the textbooks, it's still not going to be a good AI. 
And so we, we built this database by partnering with these doctors who are also frustrated about the lack of diversity in dermatology. And, and the, they're often in countries where they have way fewer specialists, um, even than the U.S., which has a dermatology shortage. And so they're like, you know, we need a step change in order to make sure all the patients uh, can get the care that they need. And so, so we brought in, I think now over 650,000 photos directly. And um, then it, under contract, we have about a million that are coming in over the next few months. For those that, that aren't familiar with artificial intelligence and machine learning, can you just give a very quick overview of what machine learning is and how data sets and label data sets work together and are necessary? So machine learning is basically a computer learning how to differentiate patterns across a specific data set. And machine learning today is really phenomenal, but on a very focused task, especially visual recognition, right? It's uh, in other data sets in radiology and other areas, AI has actually been shown to outperform experts. So, but you have to have the core database and how you think about a doctor learning over the course of like a residency is that they see a ton of cases over and over again, learn how to differentiate them. And then they write, pass their board certification and go to practice independently. So we've basically kind of done that, but for computers, right? We've built this massive database that's definitely way more cases than any individual dermatologist encounters in their lifetime and um, have trained it to say, to, to like differentiate, like we'll, we'll teach a computer, hey, here's a photo of psoriasis, but you like within these pixels is psoriasis. You need to figure out what are the features to differentiate psoriasis from eczema, from rosacea, from acne. And it learns features. And we've just learned that machines are actually better at identifying the nuanced features versus like a human describing them, right? Like, oh, it's asymmetrical. So here are 20 ways to measure asymmetry. Oh, it's colors. And so here are 50 different ways to measure color variation. Uh, that like providing that information to a computer and they decide is what like artificial intelligence is described as. You mentioned different skin colors, right? So you have people with different ethnicities, different skin colors, the rashes or the skin conditions probably present a little differently, or at least there's, they're harder to detect. Is it difficult to make sure that this system can work for everyone? You know, I'll be the first to say it's still a work in progress. And there are still things that we don't know. Like there has never been a study published about how dermatologists or primary care physicians, how accurately they identify skin diseases in darker skin patients versus lighter skin, right? Like Largely, people started caring about it like five years ago, and then there's some more recent literature about it. And so uh, what we have identified is that there is more of a burden of making sure you take the right photo and making sure those lighting conditions are um, good for that specific patient that, you know, you have a camera that works well for taking photos of that specific skin tone, and those things do matter. But once you get the photo in good lighting and with all these different parameters, which are, you know, parameters that are important for any skin photo, um, that 
as long as you have your machine learning model trained on that data, it can appropriately identify and categorize the features in that condition. And so it is like just making sure we've brought in the data to date to make sure the machine learning model is accurate on that skin tone and then making sure the photo is of good enough quality and that can take you really far. There's a lot of conversation lately in removing bias from artificial intelligence and machine learning models, having ethical AI. Do you test the model on on different skin types and sort of validate it with dermatologists or, or doctors? How does that work? So we have various levels of testing Right. So, so one way you just do internally is making sure you have like 20% of your data that's not overlapping with any of your data trained on, um, but 20% of your data that you like test your machine learning models on that it doesn't see that you don't see uh, to make sure it's like roughly, you know, the AI model is performing on, you know, roughly the same way and not overfitting that sort of thing. And then we have dermatologists um, using our product in clinic um, on various cases and saying, you know, I think the first two matches make a lot of sense. The third match doesn't make any sense. And we use that continual feedback to improve the machine learning model. And then now uh, we've engaged with a major academic medical center on the West Coast and um, a few others that are a work in progress in order to show clinical validation that like our AI models are generating the right results given this like specific clinical use case and that primary care physicians are making better and more informed choices about the care that they're delivering um, in order to right hit some of our clinical and economic metrics to um, work with integrated peer provider systems. You are in the market. You're, you're up and running. You said there's always more to do and there always will be more to do. Are you able to talk about who your current customers are? So we're working with the Air Force. They're our first customer. We're super excited to have that. And we also are working with an employer onsite uh, clinic that we just recently signed an LOI with them. So it is a bit early for me to <laughs> talk about them. Um, and we have a, a pipeline of organizations. We've really identified that organizations that are both a payer and a provider of care have the like best uh, incentive alignment in order to empower primary care, improve outcomes, reduce overall healthcare costs. And then also virtual first primary care organizations that are focused on cost containment, often selling to employers or insurers are really good fits for us because they're delivering primary care at scale through people's smartphones and deal with a lot of skin photos, right? (laughs) Like 20% plus of their patient volume is related to skin disease and they can automate various stages of like patient intake or generating the following question. If you say, oh, I have lower back pain, following up with this question, but it's really hard for them to automate skin and, you know, addressing skin disease at scale and then, you know, making that an automated process. It's easy to forget your skin is the largest organ of the human body. Yeah. Right. And one people really care about. Do you think of it as a digital health company as well? (laughs) I do. I do. I think other sectors we've seen way more um, technology uh, taking on uh, burdens of making things more scalable 
And in healthcare, we've largely, it's a many to one process where you interact with many people for a single patient. And, and I think that, you know, especially AI and machine learning, um, augmenting doctors and augmenting patients' decision-making can really streamline a lot of, a lot of healthcare. What keeps you going? One thing I realize is I'm very fortunate to be able to like live my dream and and live and solve the problem that I, you know, a problem that I care about a lot. Um, but I think the, the thing that's like rewarding and motivating is when we hear from doctors and we hear from patients like, Hey, I had this problem and I, um, either had a really bad experience and would have really loved to be able to use the product that you've made, or we've used it and it was amazing. And I would highly recommend it to my colleagues. And that's just the kind of thing that we just, obviously we're doing it at a smaller scale now, but what we're building, we can bring the expertise that dermatologists can use to help 40 patients a day to help 40,000. And that's a goal uh, worth pursuing. That's why healthcare is so rewarding. And on that, Susan, I want to thank you for being on Interesting People for 20 and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to Interesting People for 20. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please go to ipfor20.com to listen to more, or you can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Keep doing great things. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Interesting People for 20. 